0: Welcome to Miracles in Recovery with Ray Lynch. If you are one of the millions of people facing addiction issues or the loved one of someone who is, we're here to help and to discuss solutions. Hope is in your corner. Now, here's your host, Ray Lynch.
1: Good evening and welcome to Miracles in Recovery. Sorry if we took a minute to get on uh, online here, but I was having trouble with my Skype, so we're, we're phone calling it for this segment. Ellen, are you with me? Oh, okay, I'm on my own right now. So we have a guest tonight, we've been graced with the presence of Dr. Denny Carice. For more than 25 years, Dr. Carice has served as an important national voice on substance use disorder, treatment and recovery. She's a clinical psychologist and adjutant professor for the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Carice has is a thought leader and expert on the opioid e- epidemic, its origin and effect, harm reduction efforts like supervised injection facilities. I'd like to really get into a little bit of that because that's, that's kind of like in the news too. Hi, doctor. How are you?
2: I'm good, Ray. How are you doing?
1: Fantastic. Fantastic.
3: And I'm here now too, Ray.
2: Okay, awesome. Dr. Meet
1: Ellen.
3: Hello. <laughs> Hi, Doctor. Nice to meet you. Uh-huh.
1: So um, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, what it is that you do. I mean, I looked at, you, I looked at a, a little bit of your story, and it says that you, uh, you you first realized the dangers of drug and alcohol while working as a model and partying, all night at New York's Infamous Studio 54. Um, yeah. So did the addiction bug bite you, or were you fortunate enough just to be able to see the um, process?
2: No, no, I struggled with my own addiction. I was uh, probably 18, 19 years old. I was a model and in New York, and it was the uh, late 70s, early 80s, and um, I was just... Found out pretty quickly I wasn't one of those people who could put it down or take it or leave it. And, um, you know, so I had my own experience with that, um, with an addiction and with all the things kind of that come with it. Um, And I decided that I wanted to get into recovery and help other people to do that, too.
1: So how long have you been sober for?
2: Well, I first got into recovery in, I'm going to say, 1980. Four, and I haven't done it oh. perfectly, but I've essentially been in recovery since then. So um, it was, oh. uh, okay. you know, I tried it on my own for a while, like many people do. Uh, found no. out that I could quit for a month or quit for a couple months, but surprisingly to me at the time, you know, I'd quit for 90 days, and somebody would offer me some cocaine, and I'd think, well, I I can't have a problem. I haven't done it for 90 days, and I'd, I'd say, sure, and that would be the beginning of the problem, kind of picking up right where it left off. So I I kind of realized that I couldn't achieve what I wanted in life and I couldn't keep a job or, or uh, you know, even an apartment for any length of time while I was doing cocaine and that I was going to quit doing that and um, eventually got some treatment and, uh, you know, went on to do all the things I wanted to do in life, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know that you know that's the uh, the testament of sobriety or recovery when you you know like plenty of people I know that I got clean with and I ultimately my last day of uh, use was uh, February twenty eighth, nineteen eighty nine, and I started struggling right around the same time you did with you know bouncing in and out the ninety days, sixty days, thirty days, four days type type uh, environment that I lived in. And, you know, just to, over the, over the past 30 years, people that I have seen come into recovery, their world have changed, my world has changed immensely, but like, you know, you, you see somebody who was, you know, quote unquote, you know, uh, a street thug, and they're now uh, a respected lawyer in the community that they live in, and, and that wouldn't have been, you know, their, their furthest spot while they were out there actively using
2: that's one of the things I love so much about this field and about recovery from this particular disease here. When, when, you know, it's, it's difficult and it's, it can be a chronic relapsing disease. It doesn't have to be, but it often is. But when people really hold on to the recovery and and get well, they go on to do amazing things, whether that's become a doctor, a lawyer, or a great parent or a wonderful son or a, you know, a wonderful teacher or whatever that is for that person. And, um, You know, all I wanted to do when I first got sober was to not use cocaine. I I realized later everybody pressured me not to use alcohol either. So, you know, initially that was like, well, what's that about, you know? But I bought into that, Um, you know. So, for me, what I wanted was to keep one job, one apartment, and to not use drugs (laughs) and go back to school,
1: you know? Pay one light bill. Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) So, so how has
1: how has recovery molded you into the doctor, the practicing uh, what, what what is your title? You are a clinical psychologist.
2: I am. I'm chief scientific officer for Recovery Centers of America.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, oh, now, how long have you been working with them?
2: I have been working with them since they started, which was, um, I guess, November or October of 2014. This is a startup okay. company. We raised money to open up uh, drug and alcohol treatment programs, and um, up and down the northeast, Carter is where we're starting, but we're we're spreading, uh, you know, our wings and going further. So we've been very busy since then.
3: Oh, I bet you, you have. have I, I, I read that you're part of you're you're an expert on the opioid epidemic. Was um, Creation of these recovery centers partly spurred by that.
2: Well, it's partly spurred by that. One of the the really most interesting things for me, because I was helping run 140 treatment programs when the our CEO Brian O'Neill came to me and said, uh, "You know, we want to have. I want to start a new startup, and I I have these eight buildings identified, and we want to start a center." And I said, "You know, I'm running 140." You know, programs, you know, what's that about? But I had had a really incredible experience working um, on contract with the United Nations where I went into countries with a team um, and we started treatment programs in countries that never had treatment before. And they never had treatment because their government said, we don't have a problem in this country. So they couldn't possibly have treatment. And when, um, you know, the problem got worse in those countries, and in particular for many of them, Um, particularly the Middle Eastern country, when some countries, when some folks started to seroconvert to HIV due to um, drug use with, you know, with needles, um, they acknowledged the problem and started treatment. So I was able to go in with uh, decades, two decades of research career um, of what scientifically is the best we have to offer today, what's the right way to do it and help them create uh, treatment systems, and I never thought I'd have that opportunity in my own backyard. So, uh, Recovery Centers of America, being a startup, allowed me to create the treatment system the way the science says is the right way to do it—the best thing to do that gives people the highest likelihood to go on and to live the life of their dreams, like a couple of us have been able to do here.
1: Right. So, so with with that, I mean, you know, being on the being on the uh, the forefront of building a recovery, um, I, I, you know, I I don't want to say the word empire because I mean, that, that kind of, that kind of makes it look in a different light, but I mean, you're, you're doing something like, like you said, you worked with the United Nations in different countries. And do you see a mirror image of our country to others or, uh, I, um, do we show a I lot don't. more of the epidemic?
2: Yeah. So I don't see a mirror image to other countries. Frankly, America has an insatiable demand for drugs. Um, and that's something that the country needs to look at as well, why we're a nation of people who don't want to feel any pain, don't want to um, in many ways exist in reality. And I get it, you know. When I was 18 and doing cocaine, I felt like I could take on the world. I felt like, you know, I remember the first time initially saying, oh my God, this is how good people feel every day. I'd love to feel like this. You know, I, I really thought it was, you know, making me feel normal when in fact it was giving me a very, um, you know, inflated biochemical, you know, feeling of euphoria. And I think it's something that we have to look at as a culture, why we need that and whatnot. The development of the treatment system for Recovery Centers of America is very similar in that I'm um, looking at what does the science say is the best we have to offer? You know, what are the important things? Things like getting people into treatment immediately the moment they're ready, doing admissions 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's unheard of in our industry, but all the science says that's the best thing to do. And so we created right. that at, at RCA.
1: Right. Now, so so with that, you know, like I know that, you know, being trying to assist people with getting into facilities, I'm, I'm well aware that it's a business. I work in the toxicology field for quite some years after I retired from the fire department and I'm well aware that, you know, it's a business and and a lot of these places, the bottom line is the dollar and there are more people in need than there are beds available. Um, So what do you do with individuals who don't, you know, who don't fit the parameters of, What, you know, a perfect candidate going, walking in the door, like somebody who has no insurance or somebody who has relapsed for the 15th, 20th time, who has just blown out all of their options. What, what are the options for an individual like that? Because I'm sure that there's somebody out there, there's a family member who is listening who has that individual in mind as we speak.
2: You no, know, you're absolutely right. And uh, the, when you talk about it's a business, I mean the, the expression I use is, you know, no margin, no mission. You know, you you can't you can't stay in business if you can't, you know, have have uh, the resources to be able to do that. And um, you know, I've worked in I've worked for places that are entirely, you know, Medicaid and and no insurance driven. And I've worked in places that, you know, are are commercial insurance based. You know. Um, and the reality is, nobody can stay open if they can't pay their bills. So, you know, there's always people that can and can't go to all different places. Um, one of the reasons we are now we're in network, meaning that we're in network with all the major insurers so that. We don't, for example, you know, talk about toxicology. We don't bill, mm-hmm. you know, excessive amounts. for. We don't bill extra for any drug screens or make any revenue that way. We don't out-of-network uh, bill for 95% of our patients using in-network benefits. But that said, not everybody has commercial insurance. Um, and right. so when those folks call for us, we... Um, We work with them, and we try and get them into a place that does accept that. We give them some resources to go to. We talk to them on the phone about resources. We give them some web-based resources. One of the best is SAMHSA's Treatment Locator resource. And if you Google find a treatment program, you don't even have to say addiction. That's what will pop up is a resource from SAMHSA where you can type in your zip code, type in that you have no insurance or Medicaid or whatnot, type in what you're looking for, and it will pop up all the treatment programs in proximity of the zip code and give you all the details about them. It's really quite good.
1: That's good to know because I don't think a lot of people, I think what happens is a lot of people get discouraged when they're calling for their loved one and, you know, they they hit the insurance wall or they hit the, you know, they hit the, the parameter wall that they don't, that their loved one doesn't fit into. And I don't necessarily know if everyone is schooled on sharing that information with people. I mean, and uh, you know, I think that's great that you got that out there. So we'll make sure that you, you said that again a couple of times before, uh, before we end the show, just so for the people that are, you know, that don't have the, the perfect requirements to walk into any facility in the United States. And we all know, you know, just from, just from life in general, that, there are more people in need and in want than there are there are beds. Even if you are the perfect candidate,
2: yeah. And they can call one eight hundred recovery, and we'll help guide them.
1: Okay, that's that's good to know as well. One eight hundred recovery, and, and that and that gets to your your switchboard.
2: Our yeah, our switchboard, our call center, twenty four seven, three hundred sixty five days a year.
1: Okay, how
2: many how many calls do
1: you get a day on that on that call, during that call center?
2: Uh, good question. I think we get about five thousand a week. So I'll I'll double check wow. that. But we get a lot of calls.
3: Wow! I bet you do. I bet you do. That is that. I'm really. It's it's amazing to me that you are open twenty four seven and you are helping people. You know, even ones who who can't. You know, for, for whatever reason, come to your facilities. Yeah. Because there there are that's so right many thing. people out there that need help.
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: Um, yeah, I had a thought, but what 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 is your thought on um, the supervised injection facilities?
2: Oh boy, that's that's really a hot topic. So, um, you know what? You know well, what? We, we know? might I throw that as a Sorry? teaser to the next to the next segment because
1: we are coming up on a break. So, I know that that's that's something that's going to take more than a minute and a half to talk about. So, why don't we go to break. I'll see if I can get us back online and we can operate like we usually do. And um, we'll be back in a moment.
2: All right. I'll be here. Thank
3: you. Your life, your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff Spores and More with host Nancy Kerala. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. Together with her guests, we'll explore C-diff infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent
0: Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
3: Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that'll help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: You are listening to Miracles in Recovery. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Ray at miraclesinrecovery.org. Now, back to this week's show.
1: And we are back. We are speaking with Dr. Denny Caris. And before we went to break, I threw a little teaser out there about, uh, supervised injection facilities. I know that there are a lot of people out there that, um, just, they don't have an understanding of what it is because they just think, uh, oh, there's a bunch of junkies going into a building and, and getting high. And now we have an expert on that can, can share a little bit of her knowledge and, and what it is. I think, I think it's a good thing. And I, um, I know coming originally from uh, the state of Massachusetts, I know that Boston Hospital opened one up, and I think they've had success with it. So why don't you share a little bit of the medical side of what a supervised injection facility can bring to the addict and actually how it will not hurt the community?
2: Yeah. Um, So let's talk about that there. About 90% of people who meet diagnostic criteria for a substance use disorder never get treatment. And for a very small percentage of those people, it's because they couldn't find it, they're worried about stigma, they don't have insurance, they have insurance but they still can't afford it. But the vast majority of those folks don't want treatment. And while we have to work on that issue, at the same time, there's things we can do that will encourage that 90% to possibly look at treatment or to stay safe while they're not ready. So a safe injection site is a place where people can inject drugs. They're, no, they're injection drug users. They have been for a while. They do not want to quit. Um, every time they go and use this, the injection center, they have uh, somebody talks to them about opportunities for treatment or to quit or the benefits of of not using. So they're always kind of, um, you know, have the option to get help to find treatment in many ways. But while they're not ready for treatment, they have a place where they can go and safely inject. And that, what that means is that in a the community, there's less needles laying around the streets for your kids to pick up. Uh, there's less HIV, seroconversion, people getting HIV or AIDS from sharing needles and um, really, you know, causing the drain that that does on the public health system um, and clogging up the the emergency rooms with injection problems. Um, It also means that, again, while they're not ready to quit, um, if they overdose, there's people at the ready to make sure that they don't have a fatal overdose. So there's a lot of benefits, both financially, public health, and human benefits to having these sites available for the person who is adamant about not wanting to quit while it also provides a resource for them any time they might be ready to talk about it or consider quitting or getting some kind of treatment.
3: Do they actually bring their drugs in with them?
2: Yes, they do. You can't you can't buy heroin at an injection site. You you, know, you have to have your heroin, and then some places will have um, clean needles, and some places will make sure that you have. You know, you come in with clean needles, but it's just, just a safe place. Out of so curiosity, though, are injecting in the, the legality of inside. all of
3: that. Excuse me? I said the the legality of that. I mean, you're you're bringing an illegal substance into a basically a government-sponsored facility. How does that work? Well, I, I'm, and I am coming from my daughter was a big part of the opioid epidemic for about 15 years, and she was constantly arrested for things like, Having a half of an OxyContin pill, she actually spent a year in jail for that. So I'm I'm curious as to how this, you know, legally works.
2: Right. Well, it's you know the the best model that we have is um is is the group in groups in Canada that have done this. We have not. Um, done this in the U.S. in, in any, you know, real way. Um, you know, Philadelphia is trying to open one, and while some members of the government are for it, some members of the government as well, the public are very much against it. Um, so it's, it's something that often, if it's available at all, it operates in significant privacy, almost secrecy, you would say. not always government-funded. Uh-huh. Sometimes it's philanthropy-funded.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, for for me anyway, when I if I was when I was actively using, um I would have been cautious of using one of those facilities, but I think I would probably have ventured in one of the doors, you know, just because I was an inquisitive addict and and and, and I used needles and I and I was aware at the end of my use that there was something out there or a few diseases out there that had no problem with taking me out. So I think I probably would have, you know, considered looking into that. But like you said, I mean, you have to, you have to outweigh all the illegalities of all of that walking around with, with what you have in your pocket. But I did that anyway. I drove around. I stopped at stop signs and got high. So, you know, why wouldn't I walk into a place like that? It only makes sense. If there's one of those places around you and you're actively using, then why don't you try to take the benefits of that program and, and, and see because not only are you going in there and they're giving you a safe place to use, they're monitoring what it is that you're after, on and after, and also they're there to talk to you about something that you may want, in it's recovery. You know, I mean, what, when I, was, what I was using... The furthest thing that I wanted was change because I was afraid right. of change. But if somebody yes. shared with me a lot earlier on that there was an easier, the easier, out way and a better way to live life, then I think I probably would have taken them up
3: on it. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think it's some, a fabulous idea, and it's been very successful in other countries from what I understand. Isn't it Iceland or someplace like that that, that has really, really... Or maybe Portugal. They cut their addiction rates in half. So I think it's a great idea, but in the U.S., I know how the legal system works, and it's not kind of that.
2: Yeah. Um, The interesting thing from those other countries that we know is that uh, the studies that have been done there and whatnot, they all show that it does not lead to people using more than they would have, and it does not lead to people who would not have used using. So there's no evidence that having a safe place for somebody addicted to drugs to inject Uh, either leads to people injecting more or using more drugs or not quitting. In fact, it's the opposite.
3: Right. Yeah. Right. I I have heard that as well. Sorry. Oh, no. Go ahead. Uh,
2: I was just going to tell you to to wrap back to something else I checked, um, just because I want to make sure I was right about the call center. So we take about almost 10,000 calls a month. We take over 200 to 250 a day calls. And, uh, again, only a very small percentage of them come into treatment with us, but um, there's a lot of folks that we can help with referrals and other things like that. So I just want to make sure I was accurate on that with you.
1: Wow. Right, but I'm sure out of that 250, I'm sure about out of that 250, you know, you say you take. Um, you know, they may be looking for, like you said, so you may, they may not fit the parameters of being able to come in your program, and you share with them how they can get into another facility. So you're helping more than more than the number that uh, you take in yourself. I'm yeah. sure.
2: Well, that is my goal.
1: <laughs> yeah, goal is about helping others.
2: Yep. So Absolutely. That's why I went into this, and and many people, like yourself as well, in recovery. Um, you know, this has been an incredible gift, and um, our our buildings, our programs are filled with people in recovery that want to give back and are so dedicated to our patients, uh, and and really get a lot out of doing it themselves. So that's the, that's what we want.
1: How can somebody find out information on your facility? Share with, share with the people how they can get, you know, a Facebook uh, website and all of that stuff, so that they can get on and find out where you are and how you uh, operate.
2: Um, sure, they can call if they want information or to talk to somebody. They can call one eight hundred recovery again anytime, but they can also go to um, recovery. Uh, dot, uh, sorry, one uh, eight hundred recovery dot com. Um, Recovery Centers of America has numerous Facebook pages for our different groups. Um, But the other thing that's very interesting is that all of our our sites, our residential sites, we built into them uh, free space for the community so that each of the six sites that we have open, a seventh one opening soon, they are large campuses that have detoxification, residential, intensive outpatient, outpatient, all different services, but they also have built into them Um, meeting rooms and things like that for the community. So if it's a parents group, if it's a, um, you know, a neighborhood group, if it's a, you know, smart recovery, AA, NA, we make those spaces available and they're really lovely spaces uh, for people to come and to have um, community meetings.
1: Oh, that's awesome. So, so the building isn't just, isn't just quote unquote, for recovery. You do, you do your daytime stuff and you have meetings there at night and, I think that's, you know, I think that I mean that's that's a that's a great environment because it's all it's all encompassing.
2: Right. I mean we have a very active alumni uh program too. So our alumni are always doing different things whether it's, you know, going to a ball game or whether it's um hosting a meeting and you know on anything from, you know, how to do a budget, to knitting, to a group that gets together to go bowling. So there's space for, for those folks as well to meet, as well, again, as the neighborhood. Um, folks in the neighborhood want to come use the space to meet um, for anything related to public service, uh, addiction, recovery, anything like that.
1: So where are the, where were the uh, facilities located now?
2: Yeah, well, our, our first one opened up in Mays Landing, New Jersey. That's called Lighthouse. And so that's about um, 20 minutes outside of Atlantic City, New Jersey. Um, this, the next few one is in Westminster um, and another one in uh, Danvers, both in Massachusetts, uh, both kind of mm-hmm. outside of the Boston area. Um, we have a very right. large facility outside of Philadelphia in Devon, Pennsylvania. And we have two in Maryland, one on the eastern shore. Um, and one in Billingsley. And we have a seventh one opening in Sayreville, New Jersey, which is kind of up closer to the New York border. And uh, we just wanted to get a footprint here in the Northeast Corridor. You know, we have everything is is very – the the treatment is very, very individualized, but how we go about zoning and building and and creating the space so that people can get well and and that we have all the things we need in in all the proximities – You know, the nursing stations and everything, we have a very kind of formulated plan for all of that, as well as for hiring and training, and we've been perfecting that, and we are just continuing to grow. We also have um, an opioid treatment program in Trenton, New Jersey, with a few more opening this year.
3: I was going to, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but I was going to ask you, my daughter is a veteran of 20 inpatient rehabs. And I can't even count the number of sober livings and halfway houses. And none of those programs were successful for her, even some of the best ones in the country. What is the difference in your treatment programs than, you know, the traditional 30-day, you know, stuff that we've been doing probably for the last 50 or 60 years?
2: Right. So I'll tell you about the differences, but first I just want to give you a little bit of science. Um, and that is that if somebody has had any time in recovery in the past and they relapse, that time that they had in recovery is actually the best predictor that they can do that again and do it longer. Um, and then the other piece of the science has shown that the treatment, just like every other medical disease, is additive. So if somebody's been in once, in twice, in three times, that's not evidence they're going to fail they actually have a higher likelihood each time of going out and getting well. But we've got to keep remembering that this is a chronic disease like diabetes or hypertension. It's not like a broken leg where you fix it and, and you're, you're all done. It's a, it's a disease that takes continued personal monitoring, even um, if you're not in formal treatment uh, in, in later years. It takes a very um, active personal monitoring and dedication and whatnot, just as it would, for example, if you had... Um, type 2 diabetes, and you were able to control it with, with behavior and diet. It's it's like that. And when you don't do that, you end up back in treatment. So I just want to say for folks that have people that have been in 10 and 20 times, I, I understand the financial ramifications of that. I'm not speaking to that. But scientifically, they they have the higher likelihood of getting well than if they were earlier. So I don't ever want anybody to give up. Um, and uh so, And then there's certain things that you really need to do, I think, as a treatment program that the science says um, is the best way to go about things. The first one is that you need to get the person into treatment as soon as they're ready. You know, you call somebody calls up, they're they willing to explore and come into treatment, and you give an appointment for, you know, next Thursday, two weeks from Thursday at 8 o'clock, and if you're late, we're, you can't come in. That doesn't work. You've got to make the appointment right away. We transport people, too. We go pick them up. And then if they don't want that and they're coming in, they can have an appointment for noon. If they show up at 2 a.m., we still take them. So you can't have unrealistic expectations. You've got to get people in right away. Once they're in, you've got to really provide evidence-based treatments, things that have been shown scientifically that work. You've got to balance that with things that the person um, really engages in and, and likes to keep them in treatment. Because of all the science, one of the top predictors of success isn't what you get. It's time in treatment. It's how long you stay in treatment. And I know there's folks out there saying, you know, my kid was in a six-month treatment. My kid was in a, you know, 90-day or a two-year halfway house. It, it doesn't mean it's not going to work. It just means it didn't work at that time. Um, one of the other things and, and the primary reason for me of why we do not Um, cannot uh, exist on a a Medicaid reimbursement level is because I believe treatment absolutely has to have psychiatry and medicine involved. So all of our sites have involvement. have medical directors. They have psychiatrists or psychiatric nurse practitioners because so many people have depression, anxiety, trauma that you really have to address at the same time or they simply will not get well. You know, um, twenty, thirty, forty years ago, there were a lot of folks who could just who, who go to AA and get well there, and there still are many folks who can do that. By the time they come into treatment today, these are folks that have really comorbid what we call comorbid disorders. They have a drug or alcohol or both problem, and they also have some psychiatric problems or some other problems. So. Um, one of the things is that treatment problems really have to involve psychiatry um, and medicine to take care of their medical problems as well as, as emotional problems. Um, the, one of the things I think is uh, really detrimental today is the focus of some treatment systems on just one level of care because all the science points to a continuum of care, having available for people detoxification if they need that medically, and residential and intensive outpatient and outpatient. Really, at the end of residential treatment, you're really just starting. You've got a little toehold on recovery, however you define that, and it's only going to work if you continue in outpatient. So one of the things we did was have outpatient right on site at most places so the person feels kind of like they're going home. And even in our satellite outpatients, which we didn't talk about yet, um, they're, they're actually, they feel the same as the residential sites. There's a lot of the same artwork and chairs and, and, you know, coffee sh- you know, stations and stuff. So people kind of feel like they're going home. They don't feel like they have to start over. Um, so those are just some of the things in addition to really tailoring what we deliver on a daily basis to the individual and what they need and having specialized programs. We have a trauma track that really addresses trauma. We've got um, a a track just for uh, first responders who are very hard hit by this epidemic. Um, So, you know, we have another um, track just for young adults with with heroin problems. You know, I've been around a lot of years and it used to be that when somebody came into treatment and they had a heroin problem, they were injecting heroin. And Ray, maybe you, you would agree with this from back when, you know, typically people didn't, weren't what we call drug-naive, meaning they hadn't used drugs before, they really never tried anything. The progression from drug-naive to injecting heroin didn't used to be six months. It used to be years before somebody really got involved with injecting heroin. Today, that can be a six-month trajectory. A high school kid who knows nothing about drugs takes their first Oxycontin at a party and they're injecting heroin six months later. That is a very different picture.
3: Yeah. Um, I think that's pretty much what happened to my kid.
2: Yeah.
3: You know, now you, um,
1: with all all of that, that you were just, that that you were just talking about, um, one of the, one of the big things that has, has been in the news because we've had a celebrity who came out and said that she was living in a sober environment. She was living in a sober home. Wendy Williams, uh, share with people what, that environment entails, like, and, and what it is, because, like, I have an idea, coming from Massachusetts and living in Florida, when I say sober house, if I'm saying it to someone in Florida, they have a different understanding than when I say it in Massachusetts, because it's actually two different things.
2: Yes, yes. Well, that's the deal. You know, you've seen one recovery house, you've seen one recovery house, right? Um so the, the reality is that kind of ties in with another thing I think it's incredibly important for your listeners, which is what do you ask a treatment program or a halfway house about what they do to know that you're going to a good place, you know, to know that you're going to a quality place. And, you know, a halfway house should be a place where there's somebody on site all the time that you can talk to or, or whatnot, and it shouldn't be somebody else that's, you know. Two months in, re- in recovery, it should be somebody with stable ongoing recovery, or somebody that's mm-hmm. educated in this field, um, where you can go to work and come back um, to the halfway house, where as a group you will go to meetings, um, recovery meetings together, um, that day-to-day a lot of the education, the focus will be on living um, you know, a life of recovery, not just a life of abstinence, but a life of recovery. Um, and when they are run well and done right, they can be incredibly supportive, incredibly helpful, and people actually make really lifelong friends. There are places where everybody helps the other guy to stay sober. And it's, it's beautiful when, when it happens right. When people open recovery houses just to bust people to outpatient and get a kickback, and there's, you know, there's five houses and there's one, you know, um, paraprofessional staff member that kind of goes between five houses, you know, with a even if it's in a 10-block radius, but there's no availability of, you know, medical care, there's no, you know, there's nothing but 911 to call if something happens, um, they tend to be very, very difficult, and they, they kind of can feed on themselves either way. You get a very unsupervised kind of forced a group of people in there that don't want to be there and it will really uh, snowball down. You get a good supervision, a good program and a lot of people who want to be there, it will snowball up and they will all kind of take care of each other and, and help each other out. So it's very, very variable. I would ask a halfway house, you know, do you have um, somebody who sleeps there overnight? What other staff do you have? What do you do if there's an emergency in the middle of the night? What happens if you find somebody using drugs or, or alcohol? And you want to know really how seriously they take this as a, as a, as a business that serves people that, that have this deadly disorder, not at a place that can make money off of housing people by farming them out to outpatient and collecting drug screens five times a week.
3: Or because even worse, than you that, been, you know, six or seven people to a room, male, female together. Yeah. You know, they're all being charged this huge amount oh. of money. I've seen that. Uh,
2: male, female together right. is not. Yeah, yeah, that should not happen.
1: Yeah, We're yeah, and, and you know, like like when I when I I was in a um, structured halfway house, I was in a halfway house when I got out of detox. Fortunately, my detox was thirty thirty three days long. You know, this was in nineteen eighty nine, so I, it was you know completely different. Uh, um, rules back then, you know, like be, because of, you know, insurance, insurance allowed that. And, and then they don't today, but, um, you know, so I went right from a detox to a halfway house. And it was like you said, a structured program. There were 25 guys. Uh, some of them were two total a room. It was an old convent actually. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, we, we had to be, there was a morning meeting, a house meeting. We all had a counselor. We all had to go to meetings and, and there weren't like, you know, uh, somebody just taking a hundred dollars a week off of the six people that were living in one room and falling under the guise of a halfway house. That's absolutely not a halfway house. And when I moved down here and people were sharing that they, they ran halfway houses, I found myself the first six months, putting up an argument that it was a losing battle because I knew the difference between what they were saying they are and what I was in. And, you know, I think what happens is even in recovery, we get a little bit, uh, for lack of a better word, jaded about what's going on around us. We try to, we try to lend a positive voice but sometimes the the negativity that goes on around, you know, the quote unquote assisting of addicts, uh, is is overwhelming.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think you're right with that. And um, you know, there's people that are kind of newly in recovery. They haven't fully internalized, um, you know, a, a healthy and honest way of living completely. And um, you know, when the next guy who's got a year more than you says, you know, um, yeah, go recruit people, you know, out on the street, tell them we'll give them free room and board if they just uh, mm-hmm. let us build their insurance or, you know, what, the house has to be full, you know, you, you know, it doesn't matter if it's male and female mixed together. And, you know, people are taught certain things and at a time when they might be newly in recovery or vulnerable, you know, to have negative and, and and dishonest role models can be devastating for a person, and then as a result devastating for the people that trust them with their care and I think that the group in Florida, because it is such a um has been such a hotbed of um you know unethical frankly and sometimes illegal care it within the halfway mm-hmm. houses um they're also the group I think that is is really working very hard and doing quite a bit um to develop standards around halfway houses and whatnot. I think it's my yes. Miami Dade community and Palm Beach and whatnot. They have task that meet all the yeah, time. Beach, they, and they're, they're really making change really on. Um, down there.
1: Yeah, uh, well,
3: uh, so like that. Or, there's a voluntary accreditation group in Florida too. But it but yeah. it is voluntary. Unfortunately. Yeah what
2: yeah. So, it's, it's, again, it's good. People are always trying to improve things, but if it's a, you know, there's a voluntary group that accredits them, you, you have to, you know, make sure that the group based its accreditation standards on best practices, on, you know, fixing the problems, not on, you know, um, I mean, they're they're never free, typically, these accreditation standards, and they have to be meaningful as well. And we do now in the field have a lot of different people deciding on what the standards should be and ginning up, you know, different accreditations. And um, so we need to make sure that, that places have a, a legitimate accreditation and that that, that, that accreditation, the, the things you have to do to pass that accreditation, have meaning and value.
3: So. Well, I agree. Sort of like the Joint Commission. Why don't we have that for this type of treatment as well?
2: I I completely agree. That would be very helpful. I've asked them that myself.
1: (laughs) And I think maybe that's why,
2: I think maybe
1: that's why there are some of these places, these houses that welcome people in and take their rent. Um, I think that's why they fall under the radar because they're, you know, like, like Ellen said, it's a voluntary, you know, they, they passed an ordinance in the city that I grew up in, the city of New Bedford, that You know, we have we like where you live, Doc, in New Jersey. We have triple deckers. We have, you know, six family homes, and there was a there was an outbreak of people turning them into halfway houses. So there were fifty six different people living within that within that structure. So what the city did was they they passed an ordinance saying that there had to be so many people from a family they couldn't be 56 different families living right. in that house so what it did was it, it it forced those people if they wanted to get honest to run their program accordingly and get licensed and accredited and 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 florida really isn't up to the up to speed with that as of yet hopefully Somebody will take the ball and run with it, but they, but they are, you know, they're they're, they're making massive strides. I mean, look at we were dealing with uh, the you know the, the pill mill epidemic down here, and that was virtually shut down. You know, so Florida is walking in the right direction. They just need to do a little bit more homework. I think.
2: I think so too. And then there's also the issue that um, in some states, um, sober homes are not licensed at all. So, you can't right. even say you don't even have to say whether you're licensed by the state. um and again, it's it's partly a buyer beware, you know, I mean, one of the top uh, talks I do is um you know top ten top ten things to ask a treatment program. you know, and it turns out that the things you would ask a treatment program, if you're looking for treatment for a loved one, if you're thinking of treatment for yourself or if you're a venture capital guy looking to invest in a treatment program, they're actually really very similar, you know. So that's right. maybe we'll write a top ten things to ask your uh, your uh, sober living place.
3: So you know, it's probably are very similar to so. what you would ask the treatment center.
2: Very much so.
1: So if somebody calls one eight hundred recovery, and they have questions about sober living environments. Like if, say, their their loved one is in a is in a program, and they and they want to they want to venture into. I don't want to say sober living, I don't want to say a sober home, but if they want to live into a halfway home halfway house. do you refer them back to the Samshire website because I know that that's kind of housed on there as well, isn't it?
2: Yes, yeah, so that is one place to go but, um, now, so if they're calling from anywhere around our treatment programs, we have um, our our discharge folks our our, our primary therapists, uh, many of our staff they know. Uh, most of the treatment providers in the halfway houses in the area um, and so we have ones that we are in constant contact with that we would refer and whatnot that we've looked at that we've had people in them and've we've been in contact with them on an ongoing basis and we know that they're not for example um, billing health insurance for massive uh, drug screens that they are not um, unsupervised you know we, we can't You know, they're not RCA facilities, so we can't tell you we know everything about them, but we have a whole... In a host of those that we, um, that we work with up and down the Northeast Corridor. And then for anything else, um, we may know some in other cities. I, just as an example, one of my studies when I was an NIH scientist um, was in 300 treatment programs in the country. You know, so we have a lot of people who've done a lot of work in, in large systems of care. And even if they're not in our area, we, we sometimes know a place or send them back to the SAMHSA website. But um it kind of brings up another topic that I think is important is that there's um if if I have a minute, just um uh the flyaway model where people fly away for treatment is not mm-hmm. effective. That you want to stay close to home.
1: You know, I think I think we just got we just got the key that we have a minute and a half left to close. Mm-hmm. And the, the 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 knowledge that you have and the hour that we can give is absolutely not enough time. So we're gonna to have to ask you to come back, Doctor, if, if that's possible. We're gonna put be you back on the <laughs> schedule I'll I'll reach out to Kristen and I will get us uh, connected again while it's still while it's still open and and we will we will make sure that we um, bring you back on and tap into a lot of the knowledge that you do have. Thank you for thank you for joining our show.
3: And with that, Ellen with Miracles in Recovery.